I decided to be mean this week, and you will probably not like me afterwards. But this week, as I was preparing for this message, there was a song in my head that continued all week long. And it seemed like every time that I wanted to uh, stop and just kind of take a few moments, this song would be running through my brain. And now I'm going to attempt to have it run through your brain. See if you remember this little song. Maybe. I hope that runs through your brain all week. Actually, not in revenge or anything like that, but because there's a truth that's found in that song. Now, I don't buy the evolutionary premise behind the song, but the idea that I want to be like you. I have a question. Who do you want to be like when you grow up? Who are the people that you want to emulate? Who are the people that when you look at them and you don't know all their lives, none of us know another person totally and completely, but in the things that are evident to you, you say to yourself, I I want to be like them. Besides the song that was going on in my brain this week, I was also thinking about some of those people in my own life. I remember as a boy growing up and the pastor that pastored our church, his name was Russell Rosser. He was pastor of First Baptist Church in Allentown. And he was pastor there probably from the time I was about six till I was 16, 17, maybe a little older. A man of incredible kindness, had a pastor's heart like no one else I, I knew. And I can remember often, and I've thought in the ministry often, I want to be like him. Russ died about two years ago. There was a tremendous outpouring of just the impact that he had had on the lives of people. And I thought, I want to be like you. I remember growing up, there was an older gentleman in our church. He had to be in his 80s when I was in high school. And his name was Mr. Davis. I never called him by his first name. I don't even remember his first name. He and his wife had been missionaries to China before it had closed. And they had actually met in China and uh, had gotten married. They were both missionaries on the field. And just an amazing man and such a gentleness and such a such a, a depth. And I thought, boy, when I turn to be 90, I'm going to be like him. I find that as I get older, it's more and more difficult to find those that I want to be like. That as I get older and my hair gets grayer and 
you know, my, my muscles get stiffer and all those things. I want to avoid being that crotchety, grumpy old person that I see people sometimes becoming or are withdrawn and uninvolved or all of those things. I want to be someone that emulates Christ. And I look for those people that I can emulate. As we move into this message and we move into Philippians chapter 2 and the end of it, Paul's whole focus on this little part of the letter that seems almost mundane. If you're not careful, it can seem like just a letter being written. Oh, by the way, I plan to come, and um, yet before I come, uh, I'm going to send Timothy. As soon as I hear what's going on, Timothy's going to get there, and and, uh, Timothy will tell you what's going on, and then he'll bring back the message about what's going on with you. And Oh, and by the way, I'm going to send Epaphrodites right now, and I want Epaphrodites to, to bring the letter and tell you. And this sort of mundane, until you understand The purpose, why Paul sticks this pragmatic part into the middle of this letter. It's not just there to give information. It's there to give examples. To say, the way... They have lived like Christ. That's how I want you to live like Christ. Paul was holding up three men. In this case, they happen to be men. And Paul is saying, as they emulate Jesus, I want you to emulate them. And we come to understand that we learn Christ-likeness from following the example of those who accurately emulate them or emulate him in their setting, in their culture. We understand what Jesus was like, and we're going to look at that in just a second, but But one of the things we need to come to grips with is how do we show that in our culture? How do we show that in our time? How do we show that in in our places that we exist in? And and it becomes a little bit different, each culture, each time, each, each age. And so we need to look for those kinds of people in our time. We can say, I want to be like them when I grow up. Or maybe they're younger. And we can say, I want to be like them. And demonstrate what they are like. Most of you know my son, and you'll know that he's not here on Sunday mornings. And it's not because, you know, he doesn't want to be. In fact, that's one of the hardest things he faces with his job. But There are times my son does things, and I think to myself, I want to be like him. Who are those people in your lives? What are they demonstrating? What are they showing? Now, Paul has been developing this incredible letter, this incredible um, epistle as he's telling us about 
Christ and about what he wants this church to be like. And you'll remember that it seems like there was some division that was beginning to creep its way into the church there in Philippi. You'll, we'll see it later with those that are arguing in, in chapter 4. And Paul was talking about unity and pri- primarily the whole overarching theme of this chapter from the beginning of chapter 1 verse 27 all the way through to the end of chapter 3 and the last, I mean chapter 2, the last verse of chapter 2 deals with what does it mean to live out the gospel of Christ in our lives. As good citizens of heaven, what does it mean to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel? And as he developed that, he spoke about unity. And then we came to chapter 2 and beginning in verse 1 when he says that since these things exist in your life as reflections of God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, this is the way you ought to be living out. And then he talked about doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, considering others as more important. Then from that exhortation, From that part where he is proclaiming, this is what I want you to be like. He opens up this incredible theology. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used simply for his own purposes. And he presents this amazing theology. A theology of what Christ was like and his willingness to become obedient to the Father, even to death, in order that he might bring salvation to you and I. As Paul finishes that, he he tells us there in, in verse 12 that therefore, as a result of this, we ought to live in a certain way. And he begins to tell us about how we ought to live. And he reminds us that we're to do nothing with or do everything without complaining or arguing, and that we ought to be those stars that shine in the midst of the darkness. That's the theology. That's the the, the exhortation. And now what Paul does is this. He says, like these three people live it out. And here are three examples of what it means to live like Christ. The first one is Paul himself. And he says, as I emulate Christ in this, you can be like me in this. The second is Timothy, a young man. And he says, look at Timothy. He's an example. And then the third is the man of Epaphroditus. The only thing we know of is what Paul talks about here in the book of Philippians. But three examples. Where he says, when they emulate Christ, emulate them. Now, the first one is Paul. And Paul calls us to emulate those who demonstrate humility in serving others. Now, humility is not a word that we like in our culture we are too much like the Greek and the Romans. 
Humility basically involves putting others before I put myself. It says to consider the impact of my choices, my reactions, my responses, my actions, all of those things, not simply in terms of what does it gain me and what does it get me, but how does it impact those around me and does it move them to seeing the gospel in my life and producing the gospel in their life to a greater and greater extent. Now, the thing you need to understand about the people that he's using is these are real people with real struggles. One of the things that I do not like that we tend to do is we take the people of Scripture and we kind of hold them up as though they never had problems and they never had struggles and they never had difficulties. It isn't true. They lived in a fallen world just like us. They struggled with the fact that their lives are built on faith, not on sight. And sometimes those struggles were a part of their lives. As you read down through this this passage, you hear emotion over and over again. And some of it is very deep. Some of it is very disconcerting. Some of it is very troubling for them. As you read down, you read about, uh, about Paul when he talks about being a drink offering. And he says that, you know, if I'm dying, and we'll talk about that in a moment. He says, I am glad and rejoice. There's a happiness there, a a rejoicing for what's going on. But then as you continue to read down, you read about his concern about Epaphrodites, who apparently was sick, and they thought Epaphrodites might die. And listen to what, what Paul says. He says, God delivered me when he spared Epaphrodites from death. He spared me from sorrow upon sorrow, found in verse 27. Paul says, I know sorrow. I know the weight of grief. I know the weight of loss. It's not something that I walk around with just a smile on my face. It's something that weighs me down. He talks about Epaphrodites, who is concerned about those back in his home church who must have heard about his sickness. And he understands that they were concerned. And it says there that Epaphrodites was distressed. That word doesn't strike us just in that context. But it's exactly the same word that is used of Christ in the garden. When he was struggling with the sacrifice that was before him. Those who are mature in Christ are not those who are stoic. Not those who are void of the impact of the world in which we live. In fact, I tend to think the opposite. Those who are most mature in Christ are most impacted by the world around them. Jesus, when he stood before Lazarus' tomb in John chapter 11, and Mary and Martha are weeping and the town is weeping and he knows that in just a few moments, Lazarus is going to come forth from the grave. But it says there that that Jesus wept. The sadness and the emotion. Someone reads anger there, and I think it's a total misreading of that passage. I think the weight of the sorrow of the world crushed him down. We're not talking about finding perfect people. If you're looking for that in this world, you will never find them. 
We're talking about people who struggle in the midst of, of a fallen world, but struggle in a way that shows Christ. And that's what these three people are going to do. Now, Paul here demonstrates for us the idea of humility. Humility involves sacrificing for the advancement of others, that others might move ahead because of my willingness to serve them. So often I see people who are involved in serving others in order that they might get the glory, they might get the grandeur, they might get whatever it is. Paul says, it's not about me. It's about Christ and about you. Now, what he does here, this passage is a little bit in the weeds. You've got to think a little bit on this one. It's found there beginning in verse 17 where, where Paul writes this. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the ways that the, the church at Philippi had been a part of his ministry and they had supported him and they had prayed for him and they had encouraged, encouraged him and they had just done all that they could to make sure that Paul's ministry could continue. And he uses an Old Testament illustration. He says, if God calls me to be a drink offering, so be it. What's a drink offering? What does he mean? Let me give you the bigger word, a libation. Woo! You know, go home this afternoon and as you're giving someone a drink, say, this is my libation for you. The drink offering completed the sacrifice. In a sense, it was like the icing on on top of the cake. It was the the, kind of the high point, the special point where, where the sacrifice was, was, became something even more special. You read about the drink offering in Numbers chapter 15 when there Moses talks about, you know, if you bring a goat or if you bring a, a lamb in this place, if you bring a, a bull for a burnt offering, whether it's for a special promise or a fellowship offering to the Lord, this isn't the sin offering. This is the offerings of, of celebration, of rejoicing, of fellowship, of, 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 um, of a promise being made to God. He says, bring a, bring a grain offering along with your bull. It should be six quarts of fine flour mixed with two quarts of olive oil. And bring two quarts of wine as a drink offering, a libation. This offering is made by fire and, it's, and, it, and it smells Well, I'm sorry, and its smell will be well-pleasing to the Lord. What the priest would do is we'd take the cup of wine. And as the sacrifice was burning, he would pour it out onto the sacrifice. And he would complete the sacrifice. Now, take it back to what Paul is saying. Paul is in prison under house arrest. And he's waiting for Caesar to make a determination whether or not his teaching was legitimate or illegitimate. If it was legitimate, he would go free and he could continue to preach. If it was illegitimate, Paul would be decapitated and killed. 
Paul says this. If God calls me to die, even die, to complete the sacrifice you at Philippi have been making in my life, so be it. I will submit even to death if that's what God calls for. Does that sound familiar? Have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, although he existed in the form of God. It says, took on the form of a servant and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Paul says, I want to be like Christ. And if in order to serve you, the best way to serve you is to die, Paul says, I will rejoice in that. Beloved, I don't think anyone is going to call, God is going to call anyone here to die for the sake of the gospel. It could happen. But what are you willing to sacrifice in order that God might use you to bring him glory and to complete the work that God is doing in others? Paul said, even if I have to be the drink offering and my life is poured out, so be it. Humility is a willingness to serve for the benefit and advancement of others. What's your motivation to serve? What's your motivation in serving here at the church and serving in your family and serving at work in, in all the places that God calls us to interact with others and to love them well. Paul says our purpose ought to be for their benefit and advancement. Now, you can only do this if you believe in a sovereign God. Because you understand that as I give that sacrifice to the Lord, God blesses back. This is putting all into his hands. He says, emulate humility. Who do you know that's like that? Who do you know that just seems to do things for others? Has a kindness in their heart kindness in their life. There's no sense of, you know, you owe me because I've. But just a desire to serve others. Emulate them. There's a second way in which we need to emulate. And that's we emulate those who demonstrate selflessness in serving others. Humility speaks about my focus on you. Selflessness speaks about my focus on me. I set myself aside. And the one that he uses as an example of this is the man Timothy. And he says selfishness involves, first of all, a a genuine interest in the concerns and needs of others. 
I want to know people well enough that I can know how to pour into their lives. I'm not so focused on me. Our world has has an unholy trinity. You know the unholy trinity of our world? Me, myself, and I. God says, that's not the focus. And you see that kind of focus here. First of all, Paul says, this kind of selflessness is regrettably rare. He says in verse 19, I hope that in the Lord to send you Timothy uh, to you soon, that he also may be cheering you as you cheer me. And then he goes on to say in verse 20, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. And then in verse 21, for everyone looks out for his own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. Paul says that the people that are surrounding me that I can send out, there's no one that has this kind of selflessness. Only Timothy. And I love the way he describes this. Somehow Timothy understood that in getting out of myself and loving others, the one whom I am ultimately loving is Christ. Notice what it says. It doesn't say who only looks out for the interest of others. It says it looks out for that which is of Jesus Christ. This kind of selflessness involves serving Christ by serving others. John said, how can you say you love God and don't love his children? To love God is to love those whom God loves. To love them in the way that God loves them. Paul is just reflecting here what Jesus said. In Matthew 25, when there's that time of giving an account of my life, and he says, then the righteous will answer him as they come. And Jesus will say to them, when you, when you ministered to the least of these, you ministered to me. When you fed these, you fed me. And they say, the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and closed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And Jesus replies, I tell you the truth. Whenever you did it for one of the least of my brethren, of my family, you did it for me. I get so caught up in wanting people to do things for me. I get so caught up in asking the question at times whether a person is worthy. Jesus says, when you do it to the least, you do it to me. But beyond that, selflessness involves consistency in our relationships with one another. As Paul is describing Timothy and he's talking about Timothy, he goes on in verse 22, he says, you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. People who are selfless know how to love others. They they know how to be consistent in it for the long haul. 
That was Timothy. And then finally, these kind of people. It involves the effort of co-laboring with one another for the gospel. It takes effort. It takes energy. It takes a willingness to expend the resources to show Christ in the life of another. In fact, again, we're not offended by the word. The, the translation is a good one. And, and we need to be careful of this particular word that I'm going to mention in just a moment because of our historical contexts. But literally, this is what Paul says in verse 22. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has been enslaved with me for the work of the gospel. Now, the problem with that is in our culture, we tend to think of slavery in terms of chattel slavery. We tend to think of racial slavery, which was what our history is is involved with. The idea of slavery here was there was some of that in Roman times, but usually it was someone who was simply under the authority of another one that served someone else. And they did so with great labor and great effort. Paul is saying, and again, I like the translation as I think if we put slave in there, we'd have the wrong image. But it's one that just does what they need to do to get the task done. Who do you know that's like that? Who do you know that's willing to work hard to demonstrate the gospel in Christ's love in the life of others? Who's willing to make the effort? Who's willing to stand up and say, I know it needs to be done. I have the resources. I will do it. Paul says, emulate that kind of person. The third kind of person is found with Epaphrodites. And we're called to emulate those who demonstrate sacrifice in serving others. I don't know if you've learned it yet, but if you're going to serve others, it's going to cost you. Sometimes it costs you resources, money, time, effort. Sometimes it costs you emotionally. People don't always react and respond in the way you think they ought to react and respond, and it it hurts. And there's also rejoicing. Nothing like being used by God in the life of another person and see that impact, but it also costs We need to emulate those who joyfully expend the cost. You see, sacrifice involves a willingness to pay the cost of serving others. Sometimes it's a willingness to do what no one else will do. That's what Epaphrodites is. As as Paul talks about Epaphroditus and he talks about his coming and working, what what was Epaphroditus doing? He was doing for the church what no one else was able or capable or willing to do. He was willing to drop what was his life to go out on the road, to go all the way to Rome and to be there to minister because no one else could. 
So he was willing to do what others couldn't do. How do I know that? Because Paul says that in verse 30. Because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give. Sometimes we need to be willingness to step up and do what needs to be done. Because no one else is able to or willing. The second thing you see about Epaphroditus is a willingness to suffer to accomplish our God-given mission. It costs us something. What it cost Epaphroditus, it almost cost him his life. We're not sure exactly what happened. Paul doesn't give us the detail. The church at Philippi knew what happened, but somehow on the way from Philippi to Rome, Epaphrodites got sick. Deathly sick. By the way, it sort of indicates what is happening to miracles. There was a time in the early church when there were miracles everywhere, but as the church became more and more established, they they became less and less. You notice Paul didn't say, I just healed them, and he got up and everything was fine. Paul says, I was struggling. I thought he was going to die. Why? Because the church was being established. The miracles had already established it. And so now, you know, they were dealing with life like we do. God, does God heal sometimes? Absolutely. But not every time I whack someone on the head, they hail. There's a long story. I'm going to let it go. But anyway, it's a willingness to suffer. That's how much Epaphrodites was willing to give. Again, I don't think God's going to call us to die for the gospel. But we might lose a job for the gospel. We might be disliked for the gospel. I'm not talking about our obnoxiousness. I'm talking about the gospel. We might be called to give greatly for the gospel. Epaphrodites was willing. But also, sacrifice involves facing loss for the sake of serving others. It's very interesting what Paul says here. He goes in verse 27, indeed, he's talking about Epaphras. He was was ill, almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow from sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him, you may be glad, and and I might, an interesting word Paul uses, have less anxiety. What Paul is saying is, you sent Epaphrodites here to serve me, And he's a great help. But Paul, just like Epaphrodites, says, I would willingly sacrifice Epaphrodites' service to me because I believe it's what's best for you. And reading between the lines, basically Paul is saying, you know, it would have been better for me to keep Epaphrodites. He's a great help. But for your sake, I'll send him back willing to sacrifice to serve others. And finally, sacrifice deserves to be recognized by others. Paul ends this whole section as he's talking about Epaphrodites and I think the others that he's given as examples. He says, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor 
people like him. This week, I thought about those people that were important in my life. I mentioned Russ Rosser and Mr. Davis. And I remember having opportunity years ago to write them letters or a phone call or an email or Skype or however you do it. Just to say to them, I want to them, I want to thank you for the impact you had on my life. You may never know it, but I want you to know it. To honor such people. Such people. Beloved, over the last couple of weeks, we have been given examples to emulate. I don't know what your experience was, but I was sitting at home watching the TV when this, the news came across that nine people at Emmanuel AME Church had been killed. I remember sitting there and, and thinking just all kinds of things being troubled by it, being angered by it, being hurt by it. But you know what blew me away even more? Was the example that some of those families gave for us to emulate. When they stood in that courtroom, seeing that murderer on the screen, and said, I forgive you. Doesn't mean that they didn't seek justice. They simply put justice in the hands of the system and God. It doesn't mean that they weren't hurting. But it means that for the sake of Christ, they took the anger and the rage and the bitterness. and the revenge and left to go. Here's their example. The daughter of 70-year-old Ethel Lance, an employee of the church, had these words for Dylan. took something very precious away from me. I would never talk to her ever again. I would never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you. The mother of the youngest victim, 26-year-old Tawanza Sanders, was at the Bible study. Tawanza Sanders is my son, but Tawanza was my hero. But as we said in Bible study, we enjoyed you, but may God have mercy on you. Those same prayers for mercy can be found. The world cannot understand why we're not crying at this moment, why we're not bitter. Here outside the church, this church reopened its doors on Father's Day and its new pastor made a point to say that we may have noticed that the victims' families in this shooting incident all were quick to forgive the shooter. He said that if you are curious to know why those victims' families were so quick to forgive, you need to know their father, their heavenly father. I forgive you, my family forgive you. But we would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Repent. Confess. Give your life to the one who matters the most, Christ. 
Emmanuel AME Church was one of the founding churches within the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King, Jr. was involved in events at that church. The church had been burned in the past. But I was struck as I thought about that church. The words of Martin Luther King Jr. when he said this, we must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. He he who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. There is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. I ask myself, how did these believers do that? How did these black brothers and sisters in Christ Where do they find the ability to do that? And of course, part of the answer is, in fact, maybe the major part of the answer is their relationship with Jesus Christ and the knowledge of forgiveness in their own lives. But also, these are people that have struggled. That black church has a heritage. The heritage of slavery being founded when masters would make sure that their slaves did not get the full message of the scriptures because they were scared to death of what the power of God's word would do in the lives of their slaves. That church has a history of reconstruction where there was a desire to want to put power into the hands of those who had not had any power for so long, and that was crushed in violence. Read about those times and those ages. These are people that had a heritage of Jim Crow laws, where there was a white water fountain and a black water fountain. A white place for people to sit in a black place. Where you could not be served at the countertop, but had to go back to the back door. These were people that had a heritage of lynching and murder and the civil rights movement. And beloved, they have a lesson to teach us of what it means to forgive. And I believe it was that suffering and that struggle and that difficult that brought those men and women to a point where when someone came into their church, fellowship with them, prayed with them, were greeted by them, were loved by them, and got up and shot them. And they could say, I believe in God's grace and God's sovereignty. I forgive you. We are called to emulate that in our own lives. One other short example. I don't know if you heard the news last week, but there was a Catholic priest who was walking by one of the celebratory parades that was taking place in New York City 
following the decision of the Supreme Court. And two men came up to him and they spit on him. He tweeted in response and they just blew me away. I'm not sure I would respond this way. Father Jonathan Morris, he's on Fox News sometimes. He's on TV a lot. Tweeted this, walking down Broadway in 22nd. Just now, I ran into gay marriage parade. Two men walked by and spat on me. Oh, well, I deserve worse. The two men who spat on me are probably very good men, caught up in excitement and past resentment. Most in that parade would not do that. Would that be your response? Would you seek to forgive like that? Would you seek not to judge like that? Paul says, emulate those who emulate Christ. Who, though he existed in the form of God, did not equate equality with God as something to be grasped. But emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. and Became obedient to death even the death on the cross. Two questions to answer. First, where am I pursuing relationships to learn to emulate others as they emulate Christ? Who in your life are you trying to get to know better because of the way they demonstrate Christ in an area of their lives? And then how about this question? Where do I seek to emulate Christ in ways that others would want to emulate what's in me? Father, thank you for the examples of Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. May we be those who are similarly demonstrating your presence in our lives. Father, begins by placing our faith and trust in you and allowing that relationship to have its start Father, beyond that, it is then allowing your spirit to do your work in our life that we might more and more demonstrate your son. Father, thank you for the relationship we have in you through our faith. Thank you for the presence of your spirit who does his work. And Father, may we make those choices to be sacrificing, to be selfless, to be humble in all that we do. And it's in the name of your son we pray. Amen.